It's a singular delight for a pastor like me to be among you, to be worshiping together, singing songs together, and praying with you. So let me bring our, my family's sincere thanks to you all for welcoming us and embracing us for the last couple of days. It's been refreshing for us and certainly a renewal. It's also been a great joy for us to be among friends who are ministers. Um, frankly, Harold has been a dear friend despite the fact that I lack as a friend and I'm so grateful for decades of friendship. But all the friends that are here, both former students as well as co-laborers in the Lord now, just to be able to be among them, many of them better preachers than I am to begin with, but so humbly sitting here, listening to the word being proclaimed, it's a huge encouragement to me. Let me also bring greetings as well as thanks from our campus, um, Westminster Seminary, California. Good, good, good Christians belong to good churches. Good churches have good pastors. Good pastors don't come from the ceiling or drop from heaven. They're trained. And here, it's a partnership. Whereas we teach them in the classrooms, this is the place where they clinically practice what they learn. We recognize that there's much more to learn, but we're grateful for CCSC's partnership for years, grateful for your prayers and for your support. And if I can be bold enough to ask, please do remember us in your prayers. There are challenges there, obviously, challenges in many of your workplaces as well, but the culture is changing quickly and we recognize we have much to think about and seek the Lord. So we covet your prayers as well. I'm so delighted to be here at this retreat, first one in a long time, especially as Kindred is being launched in the next month or two. What a momentous occasion for the church, and we bring congratulations, as well as joyful partnership in prayer as you think through these things. And as we think about those things that are swirling in our brains, I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 1 together with me this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I noticed that as the worship was organized intentionally, Ephesians was used throughout for the call as well as the confession and the absolution as well. Here now, the word of the Lord in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, where the Lord says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for inviting your sons and daughters into your home this morning. We want to meet you. We want to hear you. We want to be led and be taught by you. Humble us by your spirit, O Lord, that we may be ready to receive. We have nothing to give. With empty hands we come. 
We pray that you embrace us with your love and allow us to experience your presence and become witnesses and testifiers of your goodness in our lives. For we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Adolescence or teenage years is the period of transition between childhood and adulthood is how one medical site defines it. Perhaps it's more simple to say that a teenager is an in-betweener, almost an adult, but not yet, almost independent, but not yet, almost mature, but not yet. They're in between these two stages, something that Christians know something about. Oftentimes, I think of myself as a spiritual adolescent, and oftentimes our churches are in spiritual adolescence. And we see this in the church of Ephesus, where the church in Ephesus was struggling with this kind of teenage life of a Christian church. They have experienced the grace of God in Christ, but do not yet fully understand what it means to live in this new reality. They realize that their identity is now firmly grounded in Christ, but are struggling to understand what that means for their lives here and now. They recognize that love transcends all ethnic boundaries, especially between Jews and Gentiles in the first century church, but at times allow their ingrown habits and animosities to dominate the way they interact with one another. They confess their belief in God alone, but are often in fear and wanting to cover all the bases by incorporating beliefs and practices contrary to God's word. Often, even in Korea still, you have Christians actually sacrificing and bringing pigs in, in the opening of their offices and as well as their companies to make sure you hedge all bets. But as their spiritual father, Paul writes to encourage maturity, growth and strength, here resolve and stability and understanding. And as people who are in the faith now, we get to listen in on how a father talks to, talks to his younger children. And we want to have three headings here that we want to think about. Thankful, prayerful, and powerful. Thankful, prayerful, and powerful. Paul is a very proud father as he begins with these words, I do not cease to give thanks. And he gives reasons why. He says, he gives thanks for what he has done. What he has done. Verse 15 begins with these phrase, for this reason. And this phrase points back to the previous section, the blessing of Paul recorded in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. He spoke of God's magnificent plan of rescue in the Son, Jesus Christ, now revealed and received by Paul and his fellow believers. I love the action verbs of God in these verses in the previous section where we see he blessed us, verse 3, he chose us, verse 4, he predestined us, verse 5, he has blessed us in the beloved, verse 6, he lavished upon us, verse 8, we were sealed, that is, we're recipients as God is acting to seal us in the Holy Spirit. As Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 reminds us, Ephesians, like us, were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were sinful people, subjects of the prince of the power of the air, living in passions of our flesh, and therefore we were considered by God children of wrath. We may remember that's who we were apart from Jesus Christ. But because of God, now they were chosen in Christ, 
adopted as children of God, according to chapter 1, verse 5, being loved by God, blessed by Christ, and sealed by the Spirit in the work of the Trinity. That's who we are now. Once children of wrath, now children of God. And what he's thankful for is not, not only what God has done, but for what God is doing. Having received, received this blessing of salvation, Paul is delighted to hear that the Spirit is at work among them. Verses 15 and 16 when he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints. Paul is thankful because their new life in Christ is producing in them the newness of life. Not just do they have new life, they have the newness of life. In particular, he refers to what we consider to be the triad of virtues, faith, love, and hope. Do you remember this? Many of you who are married perhaps heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where the base of that triad is love. But here, he talks about the two in particular. They have faith we are told. Believers in Ephesus not only believe in Jesus Christ, the proper object of our faith, that is, we have faith in Jesus Christ, but just as importantly, they're living faithfully in Jesus Christ. Do they not, not only they, do they know who Jesus is, they live out who Jesus is. Their lives and actions exhibit the new identity in Christ Jesus and display the presence of Christ in their lives, as we talked about last night in particular. But it's not only about their faith and faithfulness, it's also about their love. One such display is this love where their love has been shown to all the saints, is what Paul says. Likely, Paul has in mind the breaking down of barriers between Jews and Gentiles in the first century church, especially the Ephesian church, but more generally, Paul is thankful for the practical expression of care and concern of believers toward all of God's people. And that's what he witnesses in Ephesus. And as a proud spiritual father, Paul gives thanks for the genuine and active faith of the Christians in Ephesus. May I pause for a moment here? I'm no spiritual father to you all. All I can be is simply a brother who walks in the Lord. But I give thanks for CCSC, for your genuine and true faith in Christ Jesus our Lord, and your genuine desire to live faithfully in what you do. As Pastor Harold said, this embodied presence of Christ Jesus here in the church is palpable and seen. And we give thanks to the Lord for this body of Christ here, planted for the sake of his gospel's proclamation. We're also grateful for your love, love shown to us as a family, love shown to me. We have some friends here who are here who are like family to us, but all of you have treated us like family, indicating to us the love that Christ is working in you. And we give thanks for you from afar. You may not get to see this because you're part of the church. No church is perfect, as you know. Sharon and I have come to realize how impatient we are or understanding we are, lacking understanding we are recently. We were talking about this, how different stages of life bring different needs and priorities. When we had younger kids, we used to wonder why parents with teenage kids, when we invite them over, would leave one or two kids behind and not bring them over and saying, oh, they're busy. And we would think, is it because they don't like us? Is it that the kids don't like us? Why would they do this? And then we got to have teenagers and realized that their schedule is busier than ours. 
We've chosen not to put our kids in weekend sports, in particular on Sundays. And so when every other day things are filled with activities, we've chosen to send them. And not necessarily uh, because we want to be away from them, but we try to support them in what they do just so that we can keep uh, Sunday as it is. But having done so, sometimes when you get invites, our kids can't go. And there was a time when we thought, boy, that was very rude. Now we've come to realize, you know, there are explanations. Everyone has a story. And I recognize, friends, no church is perfect. Yours is not either. But at the same time, here you have genuine faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have people and leaders who are seeking to apply the faith in your lives. And you have love for one another, palpable and seen in the way you greet and you sit and you talk to one another, encourage one another. And I heard about access ministry this morning in particular, where we come to realize that the least of us are the ones that are greatest in the Lord. And we come to recognize the joys in laboring together that way. And so friends, I know this means very little, but as a brother in Christ Jesus who do not belong to the church, we give thanks for you for the ways that the Lord has worked among you. But as we think about this kind of thankfulness of what the Lord is doing at church, we become prayerful. Though thankful, Paul remains prayerful. What Paul desired most for his spiritual children is growth and maturity in faith. He knows that they are prone to wander and prone to leave the God they love. It's a hymn, isn't it, in terms of come thou fount. And we come to recognize our hearts. Notice prone to wander and prone to leave the God they love. It's not lack of desire. It's indeed our sinfulness overtaking. So Paul turns to the only one who can help. Paul knew that his desired growth and maturation of the believers is wholly dependent upon God, who is at work among them. We, after all, are not only saved by grace, but are also sustained by grace. It's not just that grace saves us, Grace is the sustaining power within us, and we recognize that the only one who has it is God. Thus, Paul now records his specific prayers for his church, and listen to it because this is the prayer for you, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This particular prayer request focuses on Wisdom and revelation given through the workings of the Spirit. And in short, if you were to summarize it, Paul prays that the church knows Christ more. He simply prays. He doesn't pray for growth. He doesn't pray for impact. He doesn't pray for relevance. He prays that the church and the people therein know Christ more through the Spirit. What does knowing Christ more mean, according to Paul? It can be much more than this, and he's not providing an exhaustive list, but he tells us three things about what it means to know Jesus Christ more. According to verse 18, knowing Jesus more means we have hope. And it says here, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This completes the triad. Remember, he talked about love and faith before, and somehow he left hope out. But now he completes it verses later when he talked about hope, faith, love. Now hope is spoken of here where he talks about the importance of hope. The hope prayed for here is not wishful thinking or often changing desires, but the confident hope of being manifested with Christ 
one day again. When Christ, according to Colossians 3, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul prays that this hope be ours, being with Christ. For the Ephesians who had no hope without Christ, according to chapter 2, verse 12, he says, remember, you were at that time separated from Christ. And what it means to be separated from Christ was simply having no hope and without God in the world is how he defines it. The hope that Christ provides may have been difficult to comprehend and surely to understand, but the promise of God is that one day we will stand with Christ in the final resurrection, clothed in Christ's glory. He will bring us home that day, and until that day, he promises to carry, provide, guide, and lead. Confident hope not found in our abilities, but in God's faithfulness. He will bring you and this church home one day. That's the hope. But knowing Christ also means that we understand the riches, according to verse 18, where it says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, I recognize that scholars differ on this point, and there are many who argue that the inheritance mentioned here points to the inheritance God gives to us as his spiritual children in Christ Jesus. It's recognizably possible that what he means is what he's going to give to us as co-heirs of Christ. But the text actually speaks of God's inheritance. It's preferable to understand this as the portion that belongs to God. New Living Translation, a slightly different translation, has it this way. His holy people who are God's rich and glorious inheritance. Not what we are to receive... What, but what God has made us to be in Christ Jesus. In other words, God has made us his own. What we are to understand is not only the hope of seeing him one day face to face, but that we are special to him. We are his treasured possession, and he will redeem us completely on the final day. Thus, Paul prays that his readers might appreciate and experience the extraordinary value which God places on them simply because of Jesus Christ. He sees you through the bloody lens of his son, Jesus Christ. And so he recognizes you, not as you, but as his son in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As Isaiah 43 declares, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you beautifully, wonderfully, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You, according to God, are mine. You are mine. God doesn't love you because you're lovable or beautiful or successful. You are lovable because God loves you. It's his love that makes you who you are. It's his love that identifies you. The world might say that you ought to be judged by your success, your schooling, the square footage of your home, the cost, or the dollar signs in your bank, or the titles behind your name. But here, simply, Jesus says to you, you are mine in Christ Jesus our Lord. You belong to me. I know you by name. Have you ever felt what it felt like when you're unknown, when nobody remembers your name, and you've been at church forever? But here God says to you, I know you by name. I call you by name. He says, Desmond, I know you. Ian, I know you. 
Mia, I know you. Here, I know you by name. That's who you are. Set apart, loved by God in Christ Jesus. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Heidelberg Catechism asks, as Q&A number one, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, and in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You belong. I am not my own, but belong body and death, and life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, is what he says. I know you by name. This riches you ought to know. And to know Christ more, third and finally, is to know his power. Verse 19 says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The focus is the amazing power of God at work on behalf of the believers. The power of God is made emphatic by beginning with a common word for power, dunamis. Lots of pastors talk about dunamis and how it relates to the etymological beginnings of dynamite, power. But what God here, what Paul says here, he adds three synonyms. What is translated as the working of his great might, more woodenly is better translated, the working of the strength of his might. He's piling on synonyms here, and the author exhausts the resources of the Greek language by piling up four synonyms for power in order to convey an impression of something of how powerful God is. Paul has piled up similar words because he wants to convince us, his readers, that God's power working on behalf of the believers is unincomparable and fully able to meet all your needs. For this church, even as you tackle the challenges of the changing environment around us, for kindred, Dinko and Priscilla, here, what goes before you is not your wisdom and strength and abilities. It's God's power at work among you. And God is at work to know Christ more is to know that we are his riches and precious to him. We come to recognize that God's power is at work among us in terms of what's happening. And that he fills us with hope. No matter what speed bumps we encounter along the way, he will bring us hope. But what's interesting here is talking about how prayerful he is. And how thankful he is, he says, you know what? I think we need to understand this power of God a little bit more. For spiritual children sometimes don't understand the kind of power at their disposal. Why? Perhaps because they didn't know. They knew it incompletely or they knew it wrongly. So here is an interesting question that we ask that Paul wants to explain. How powerful is God? He tells us in verse 20, he is so powerful that he raised Jesus from the dead. As he says, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What kind of power is it? The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Death has no power nor mastery over God as he raised Jesus from the dead. If the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the supreme demonstration of God's love, then the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb is demonstration of God's supreme power over sin and death. It is the declaration that Christ is not dead. He lives and he reigns. That's the power at work 
among you all. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work among us even now. God continues to raise the dead. I don't mean physically dead. God raises those who are spiritually dead. For those who believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, that message, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes and transfers the believer from death to life. No one is beyond his grace. No one is beyond the reach of his power, we're told. Some may say, you have no idea what I've done. My perversions, my betrayals, my brokenness are beyond your sheltered imagination, is what God, you might say to us. But God says his power is adequate and sufficient to overcome all your sins and shortcomings. And what we see around us, not just here among us here, but throughout the world, is that God is bringing dead to life. That's what's happening. From the young to the old, to the hostile, to the welcoming, here God is at work bringing life among those who are dead. And we participate in that. And you launch a church to even enhance the ability to be able to proclaim this life-giving power of Christ Jesus our Lord in all parts of Southern California. Here, this is at work. This is the power. Not only does he give life to the dead, God provides beyond measure. Here, Paul is the father again in chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. I know I'm skipping here, but he actually refers back to this passage when he says, for this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father and pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And the practical value of such knowledge is understanding God at work. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine. Far more than what we can ask or imagine according to the power at work within us. Not only is God willing, but he is able. Not only is he able, he is far more abundantly able. Not only is he far more abundantly able, what that means is that he is able to do more than we ask or think. This power is already at work within this church, within kindred, within us as Christians and our family. God is Big is what we're trying to say. Remember that song, Our God is So Big? Why does that song go? So strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. I think we think of it as a child's song, and so we forget what it means, but it's actually a song for us. You know, in the first century, they talked about how God was a monotheist, that is, one God. But to be honest, in addition to monotheism, it was also mega theism. That is, God is big, is what they believed, far beyond their imagination and knowledge. Our God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there is nothing my God cannot do. This is why Ephesians chapter 6 ends with these words when he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I'm not sure what you're praying about, friends. Maybe it's about you, your relationship with your spouse, your children, your particular ministry, this ministry, this church, kindred, perhaps some organization, your workplace, 
Whatever it is, here, this is where as children of God, we come before him who considers us his own, knowing us by name. And remember, our God is big and powerful. We belong to him. And this is the person to whom we seek and pray. Would you remember that? May the Spirit work in you, that the God of power and glory grant you wisdom to know the riches and the hope that you have in Christ Jesus and the strength and power among you and in you to persevere in faith in the midst of changes and challenges for his name's sake, for the exaltation of Christ, and for the glory of his name. May CCSC and kindred be used to, be used to that end so that his name will be known widely everywhere and that his power may be witnessed. Let's pray together. You are so big, so strong and so mighty, O oh Lord, but oftentimes we believe in believing in a very, very small God who could only do so much in our lives. Lord, we're not just simply monotheists who believes in one God in Christ Jesus. We confess that we are megatheists, believing in a God so big, he is able to do far beyond what we can ask or even imagine. Teach us that faith in the Holy Spirit, O oh Lord. Renew us in that confidence, O oh Lord. Confidence not in ourselves, but confidence in you, in you and you alone, knowing that we belong to you, that we have hope in you, that we have access by prayer to that power at work among us. So Lord, UCCSC and all the members therein and kindred and all the members therein to that end, be especially with the pastors, O Lord. We lift up Pastor Harold and Pastor Dinko and all the pastors who serve so faithfully here, O Lord, who have been your servants with faithfulness for decades. We ask that you strengthen them, you keep harm away from them, you keep the evil one far away from them and their families, O oh Lord, that nothing will hinder them in their declaration of your word. And be with all those who serve you both in public and private ways. Faithful Christians who are here, O oh Lord, who desire nothing but to seek you. Those who are among us who are young and weak, Lord, be near them. And allow them to experience your nearness among them, O oh Lord, as they seek to know you more. And for those who are here simply inquiring, who do not know you yet, we pray that the Spirit will soften their heart. May the power that raised Jesus from the dead be work among them, that they too may know you and be a part of this family that you have created in Christ Jesus. For we pray these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.